Hallo och välkommen till en ny episode av PL Kvarteret med mig Lars Sivertsen i samarbete med Betsson. Vi har en ganska stor nyhetssak i England i, I fotbollen den uken. Newcastle United har i praxis blivit köpt av Saudiarabien. Jag har en del tankar om detta men sin det är er ganska viktigt tema då så tänkte jag det var bäst att faktiskt ha en gäst som har lite mer kompetens än mig på den delen av världen på detta med mänskligheter och såna ting så därför har jag fått med mig en, en gäst som jag syns er en väldigt god gäst men det betyder alltså att resten av podcasten eh, blir på engelsk eh, någon gång eh, beklage för docke som inte trivs så gott eh, med det och i tillägg så har jag köddat ljuden på min mikrofon lite eh, ljuden på gästen blev blev ganska bra även om han tog upp på en laptop eller en plats men min egen ljud köddar jag till lite så jag beklagar mig lite mindre behaglig och höra på en vanlig i resten av den podcasten okej okay, kör på all right, uh, Nick McGinn, thank you very much for taking the time. You are the founding director of the non-profit human rights organization Fair Square. You are the f- former Middle East researcher with Human Rights Watch. You've helped educate me, actually, in the past with regards to uh, the guitar issue and some other things, uh, which I'd done some work on. It's about six, seven years ago now, which makes me feel really old. Just thinking about that, it's, it's, it's aged me straight away now. But uh, <laughs> hello, Nick, and thank you so much for taking the time uh hi Lars no I'm um yes happy to happy to be here it's a pleasure I think the first thing we should do is talk about who uh, and what Saudi Arabia are because when you hear the phrase human rights concerns in relations to football these days I feel like we hear it all the time with various owners sponsors tournament hosts we hear it all the time so it's almost devalued the phrase entirely it's almost something that doesn't register with I, I guess I'm sure they own a football club there must be human rights concerns uh, so when it comes to Saudi Arabia, what is it about them uh, that uh, have gotten people uh, quite as upset with it and then their involvement in, in, in Newcastle United as, as, as people have been? Yeah, well, I, I, I agree with you. The term human rights concerns has become sort of a blanket term. It doesn't really mean anything. I, I often think that people really need to spell out exactly exactly what we're talking about, like give people the the, the blood and the guts and the gore, unfortunately, that, that are associated with this stuff. Um, otherwise, it just doesn't really resonate, you know. Um, well, the first thing I'd say, I mean, Saudi Arabia is has long been associated with uh, very extreme human rights abuses, which is to say a very extreme climate for anyone expressing dissent, criticism of its rulers, a very extreme situation for women um, who, who live under a very extreme form of Wahhabi Islam. I mean, Saudi Arabia is essentially a political accommodation between the Al Saud family, um, who are a vast and sprawling um, family who have ruled um, since since the country was created, and and its its clerical class who who are drawn, who are who have adopted a very extreme form of Islam, which. Um, keeps women under very tight control under a guardianship system, and it's why, for example, you see all these stories of women who, who are unable to drive. Um, although that has changed recently, of course. Um, then there's a the situation of migrant workers in the country. Now, you, you know all about Qatar on that issue, but that situation is just as extreme, if not more extreme, in Saudi Arabia, and the numbers far exceed the numbers that are in Qatar. Many millions of migrant workers um, in the country, and they are treated appallingly. Um, so it's it's never it's always been one of the bad actors, shall we say, in the human mm-hmm. rights world. It's always been known that that Saudi was a place where the very fundamental and basic rights are simply not respected. Uh, 
the, the situation got worse, I would say. <laughs> the situation got worse because it's not just about Saudi Arabia, this takeover. It's about Mohammed bin Salman, who's the mm. current prince. And his rise to power, which began in 2015, has seen the country's record, even though he's been hailed as the great reformer, the country's reputation on this issue has actually plummeted. Um, and that's due in no small part to his personal actions vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the war in Yemen, the disastrous war in Yemen, and, and the murder of the journalist Kamal, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, actually, tell us a bit more about Mohammed bin Salman, M MBS, the, the, the crown prince, the de facto leader, as you say, once held up as a reformer. Uh, here in London, actually, you might have even seen his big face on an ad campaign a few years back uh, where it said he was opening Saudi Arabia to the world. Uh, and then, since then, there's kind of been some unfortunate business with a bone saw and things have gone a bit wrong. Uh, what can you tell us about the man who is now the chairman of the fund that owns Newcastle United? Yeah, well, he, he came from nowhere. I mean, he he was elected. In, it was he rose to the position of defence minister in two thousand and fifteen, only through a quirk of fate, whereby which saw his father become the king of Saudi Arabia, um, due to a series of bizarre, not bizarre in the sense that there was anything suspicious about them, but several people who were ahead of his father in line to the throne died. Um, his father was elected king, uh, or was you know rose to the position of king, and, and he then. Um, became defence minister. Now, this guy wasn't known to anyone. He wasn't known to diplomats. He was, he was somebody who, unlike the Saudi elite, who spend most of their time in Geneva and London um, and New York, you know, spending money on Lamborghinis and such. MBS was never like that. MBS was a man who's always spent time in Saudi Arabia, who was very well known there in Riyadh and spent a lot of time there, but was never somebody who anybody thought would rise to a position of power. However, this love, shall we say, his fondness for staying in the country led him to become very, his father became very fond of him. He was one of his favourite sons. And when it came to electing somebody crown prince, it, the, it was Mohammed bin Salman who was elected Crown Prince, mm -hmm. and that was in 2017, instead of his cousin, um, Mohammed bin Nayef, who has since been put under house arrest. So he, he came out of nowhere. Uh, he wasn't uh, particularly well known. He's very um, flamboyant. Uh, he's very gregarious. Uh, he's very charismatic. Um, and he has been able to uh, persuade lots of people that he is this great reformer. And a big uh, part of the, the PR campaign behind putting him in power was actually run by the United Arab Emirates, owners of Manchester City. So they were key to selling him in the US as the great reformer and key in many respects as to why he was chosen ahead of Mohammed bin Nayef to be the crown prince. And in being crown prince, he's effectively the de facto leader with his father in ill health. So he's now extremely powerful um, because of uh, shortly after he came to power in November 2017, he assembled all sorts of key members of the Saudi elite at the Ritz-Carlton, where there commenced what can only be described as a shakedown, um, where mm -hmm. these people were taken into custody, interrogated. Many of them had their fortunes taken away from them. It was in this shakedown at the Ritz-Carlton that he took control of the public investment fund for example. Um, and um, whereas beforehand, Saudi Arabia had, as, as I said, it was ruled by this Al-Saud dynasty, but power was, was, 
was disseminated among them. It was spread widely, and no one singular person could assume complete control of everything. That's that's really changed under MBS. He's essentially become the all-powerful dictator of Saudi Arabia, um, probably to the uh, great annoyance of many of his um, uh, many of his relatives. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's who we're talking about. And uh, I feel like we need to get it out of the way because the Premier League have said that they have legal guarantees that the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund is entirely separate from the Saudi state. Now, this would be the Saudi Public Investment Fund where, as far as I can tell, the crown prince and, as you say, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia is the chairman where uh, I think six out of nine board members are government ministers. This Mm -hmm. is entirely separate from the state. And I have to say, personally, if Richard Masters, the CEO of the Premier League, actually believes that, he must be one of the most gullible people in the world. I feel like I need to get in touch with this guy and talk to him about some magic beans or something. But am I being very unfair? Am I wrong? Uh, And also, what sort of legal guarantee... What could a legal guarantee actually be worth in this context? Well, it's, it's funny how the, the Premier League phrased it. They didn't say that they were separate, right? I, I thought this was notable in their statement. They said that Saudi Arabia wouldn't control Newcastle United. They didn't actually mm. specifically say that the public investment fund was separate from the state because that is patently ludicrous. Now, I, I don't know if that really was an attempt to fudge it, um, but there is, I mean, the, the idea that, that PIF is separate from the Saudi state. I mean, it's just not true. You know, like it's not, there's nothing to debate. I mean, he's the chairman of the Public Investment Fund. He's the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He's clearly involved in Newcastle United for political rather than commercial reasons. Um, There is absolutely no question that it's the Saudi state uh, that is in control. And there's absolutely no doubt that it will exert full control. Um, The legal assurances that, that Masters and the Premier League are talking about are, it's just nonsense, you know. I mean, it's 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 preposterous. It's clearly um, just an attempt to to allow the the takeover to go through. Um, I don't think Masters or anyone at the Premier League believes for a second that that MBS isn't going to be in control. Mm. Now, I feel almost slightly awkward, sort of. Like almost like ranking regimes according to human rights violations. That just seems ghoulish to me because they're all horrible. But one argument I used to come across quite a bit uh, when talking to people about Qatar, especially when I went there, uh, people, more than one person in, in Doha said this to me, that they felt it was sort of grossly unfair that because of the World Cup, Qatar are now almost held up as the great boogeyman uh, of, of the region, whereas compared to Saudi Arabia, they're actually quite a liberal society, comparatively speaking. Comparative doing a lot of heavy lifting in the sentence, but but it's true. Yeah. Uh, and it's, um, again, for my listeners who are predominantly Norwegians, we've spoken a lot about Qatar this year in relation with the 2022 World Cup. I mean, Saudi Arabia are considerably worse by any measure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm to go back to the quickly on the Qatar issue. I'm, you know, I, I am no defender of Qatar. In fact, I, I would place myself as one of its most prominent critics in the way it's behaved in relation to migrant workers' rights. But I can go to Qatar. I can sit down and chat to the Qataris about that. You've got Al Jazeera in Qatar. You don't have people in Qatar who are rounded up for expressing, you know, criticism of the rulers. You know, it's not a haven for free speech by any matter of means. But you know, you can't. It's not really in the same league as, as Saudi Arabia or indeed the UAE. You know, the real bogeymen in the region um, are the UAE and Saudi. There's no question about it. And Bahrain, which is a sort of vassal state of Saudi. 
so yeah, I I think people you know Qatar is not <laughs> it's not to be held up you know as as a shining example of anything, but I think people in Qatar are right to say you know we're not we're not the Saudis. It's slightly tabloidy, but a phrase that was put to me is that Qatar is where Saudi Arabia hoped to be in about ten fifteen years time, in terms of reforms and in terms of opening up to the West and becoming palatable to uh, foreign uh, companies. I mean. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I think there is. I, I don't think Qatar is their model. I think the UAE is their model. Um, you know, I think that's that's who they look at for an example on how to do things. So yes, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, this great reformer narrative is predicated on a diversification away from oil, and that requires vast amounts of foreign investment into the country. Hence, super projects. Hence, boxing in you know you know the the Joshua fight, etc. And Newcastle. Yeah, because that, that brings us elegantly on to my next question mm-hmm. on my little list here. Um, why? Because uh, why are they uh, getting involved with, with Newcastle United, all, of all things? Uh, there doesn't seem to very be a very strong business case to buy Newcastle. Mike Ashley's been trying to sell it for, for many years without managing to find a buyer. There's usually a reason for that. Uh, what does Saudi Arabia want with Newcastle United? Well, go back to first go back to Jamal Khashoggi. October 2018, Mohammed bin Salman was personally implicated by a UN report and by the US government in having essentially directed the operation that led to him being lured to the embassy in Istanbul, where he was murdered, his body dismembered and disposed of. The This blew a massive hole in the PR great reformer narrative. He was now a murderer. <laughs> In the eyes of that's not the same world. thing, yeah. Murderer worse than the great reformer. I can see how oh, that's a yeah, not ideal, not ideal, right? Um, and since then, he's been engaged in you know image rehabilitation. Uh, he's still not there yet, you know, he's still struggling to get investors into Saudi Arabia. Um, and and he needs to he needs to present himself as someone else. He needs a different narrative. He needs to not to be associated with Jamal Khashoggi. He needs to be associated with something else. Football is a really good way of doing that. Um, and I suspect he has seen how Abu Dhabi have run their Manchester City operations. I suspect he's looked at what Qatar have done with PSG. Um, and he's realised, or his PR advisors have realised, that owning a football club is a really good way to do that. It's not, you're absolutely right, it, it's not a commercial venture. I mean, Amanda Staveley, one of the consortium bid members, was on um, doing interviews last week talking about how it was commercially motivated. Of course it's not. It's politically motivated. Um, and it's there to serve his political ends. And in this case, I mean, I, I think sports washing is a term that gets bandied about quite loosely with no one really having an idea of, of what precisely it means. But, <laughs> but you do know it when you see it, I guess, in mm. its most um, obvious forms. And I, think, I don't think you could find a clearer example of it um, than, than this Newcastle takeover. Well, I suppose you can go online now, and it's uh, those of us who spend maybe more time on social media than they should, which would be me very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for 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 me, it's very easy to think that that Twitter is an accurate reflection of the world, which it isn't. Uh, but it is interesting in the case of Newcastle how uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia seems to have immediately purchased themselves an army of quite passionate defenders uh, for, from the northeast of England, presumably who. Uh, in the past would, would maybe not be very interested in what's going on in, in Saudi Arabia and in certainly not feeling very defensive about them. 
Yeah, well, that's that's one element of it, you know, and that's happened in Manchester too with with the Abu Dhabi defenders that we, we see there. So you've got this, yeah, you buy this domestic army of loyalists who'll, who'll sort of, um, you know, defend you to the hilt as long as you bring them success. Um, you also buy the silence of local politicians and the support of local politicians. We're seeing that in Newcastle right now. You buy the acquiescence or the silence of the local press. Um, and to some extent, the national press, who are you know keen on access to, to the great players that Newcastle will buy, and therefore hesitant to to criticise them too fiercely. So it's a really smart move on on, on that um, basis. And then there's the international audience. You know, the Premier League is the most watched league in the world. It's beamed out everywhere, and so he has a canvas on which to to write whatever he wants about Saudi Arabia. It will be beamed around the world. And instead of, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the bone saw um, directing assassin, it's it's Mohammed bin Salman, the, the you know, the munificent, the glorious owner of the most successful team in, you know, whatever, the Northeast, England, Europe, <laughs> depending on how successful he runs it, you know. Well, I mean, that that is, I mean, it's a bit of a side sub topic, but... We've spoken a lot about Vince, uh, of uh, Saman's uh, record and his sort of <laughs> fall in perception from being the reformer to being the murderer. Um, is he competent? Because I- I've certainly seen in some of the reporting by the, by the journalists who cover Newcastle that they're expecting things to have to be run through Saudi Arabia to an extent. I mean, they will have to check with their partners occasionally before doing things, which does mean that there, there'll be a, it's not just Amanda Stavely and the Rubin brothers who will be running things here. And that does make me feel like we need to, I want to ask the question to you anyway, mm-hmm. can we expect a level of competency from their new owners in Saudi Arabia? Can I, can I sort of compare them to Manchester City? I think I think it's it's really interesting to see how the two projects are run because Newcastle fans are looking at Man City, right, and saying we're going to be like them. So the Man City operation, I mean, I I have, you know, no, <laughs> on a, you know, the people behind that are deeply sinister and deeply dangerous, but they're very good at their jobs. Mm. And Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed of Abu Dhabi has got his top guys in at Manchester City, and they run it really professionally, and. Yes, there's a reputational element to it, and they do that extremely well. Um, there's a business element to it as well, and there's a political element to it as well. And those guys know what they're doing, and they're doing it extremely well, I would say. There is no sign in the, in the Saudi takeover of that level of competence, right? For I mean, Amanda Stavely was talking um, last week on you know, a couple of interviews. I, I mean, she barely hit the PR lines that she was supposed to do and contradicted herself twice um, that I saw. So I uh, I wouldn't be necessarily over imbued with hope having seen those interviews from a Newcastle perspective. But take it back to, to Salman, who's going to control the place. Well, the first thing he did when he was elected defence minister was he launched the most catastrophic conflict um, in Yemen. Um, which has been a disaster for Saudi Arabia has embroiled them in this conflict that they cannot extricate themselves from. Um, he's also been um, he's also gotten into a bit of a conflict with Abu Dhabi. I mean, these guys are are um, held up as um, allies, and they are to an extent, but they're also bumping up against each other as regional rivals for investment and such. Um, so that relationship isn't as 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 good as it was. He's known to be brash. He's known to be hot-headed. I mean, the Khashoggi killing was an act of lunacy um, 
on any level, mm. on any level, why would you why would you allow yourself to be implicated in an act like that at a time like that when you're trying to deliver, you know, these 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 domestic goals? Um, you know, it was just it was just absurd to to get involved in that. Um, so no, I mean, there is there's there's no clear sign yet of of competence. You know, there's there's tons of money, and tons of people invested in presenting him as competent. Right, um, because he's so wealthy, he's got such deep pockets, and everyone has their, um, you know, everyone wants a bit of that. But um, you know, the idea that it would just be instant success, I think, um, I think Manchester City shows that you know it takes a bit of time; it can't just be done with money, um, and you need some smarts about you. Uh, it's not clear if MBS has those. So what I've heard a lot uh, these last few days from Newcastle fans is uh, I'm from Newcastle or in the case of listeners to this podcast, a lot of them I'm from Norway, but I like Newcastle. Uh, I only care about what happens in Newcastle. If this is good for Newcastle, then that's all I care about. Uh, is Are they entitled to think like that? I suppose everyone's entitled to think what they want to because we're not in Saudi Arabia partially ever, or to quote a Newcastle fan I know and have a lot of time for, for me, Newcastle is the city, the supporters, the players that matters. And I can separate that from what the owners do and think. I'm not going to go to Saudi Arabia and I'm going to continue to be critical about Saudi Arabia. Uh, Is this a viable stance? Well, I think you can separate the ownership from the club. You know, I think you, you... You know, you see that a lot in in Germany. Take the Bayern Munich fans in, in Qatar, or certain mm. segments of the Bayern Munich fans. You know, who are really critical of the, what the club's doing in terms of its association with Qatar, and yet are the most fervent and devoted and passionate supporters. You know, so I think Germany is the model where where you can sort of push back against this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, we see anti-Qatar banners at the Allianz, and they're protesting their own club, not anyone else. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, t- but, but way more than that. You know, they've hosted events. They've flown migrant workers over to, to Munich to talk to them. You know, those guys are remarkable. Anyway, side issue, I guess. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I fans should go into it with their eyes open. Like, don't, don't fool yourself that this is about football. Like, go into it understanding that this is a political operation, and you're part of it. And your acquiescence and your support is what they think they are buying to an extent. Um, so I think that should concern fans mm-hmm. for a start. You know, the other thing that concerns fans is, is it going to be a success? Is this really in the long term, you know, is this, is this really going to be sustainable? If it's a political project, right, and it is, <laughs> then what happens when the cost-benefit analysis of that, you know, political project results in them just dumping the club? Mm. What, what state will the club be in then? You know, I mean, is this? You know, I wonder. Will we look back that this is at the moment that destroyed Newcastle United, not the moment that elevated it to to the greatness that it fan, its fans seem to want? So I, you know, I get the sort of conflicted nature of um, of supporting a, you know, why fans are so conflicted. You know, I I understand that, um, but I think the the rationalisation of why it's okay in so many cases, just just doesn't add up, you know, really. Well, some of those arguments are clearly nonsense. Like, uh, well, because they own a few percentages of, like, Uber and Disney, then everything is okay. Like, this yeah, stuff makes monsters. no sense. Yeah. But, but there are sort of more reasonable stances. Like, there was a paragraph in uh, David Goldblatt's piece in The Guardian, which I'd like to read, actually, and then Simon mm-hmm. Cooper's piece in the FT was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldblatt writes... 
there's an entire industry overwhelmingly in London and the southeast that's grown grotesquely wealthy on servicing the political and economic needs of the Gulf's ruling families uh, and oligarchs and dynasties everywhere, from the banks that launder stolen money to the accountants that hide it, from the lawyers who resolve tricky domestic affairs to the PR firms mopping up the damage afterwards, and the real estate agents that arrange to store your wealth in London's empty residential skyscrapers. Our governments and arms industry have have hardly been any better, barely able to censure the Saudi state for its human rights abuses, uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, or its war in Yemen for fear of losing enormous arms sales and construction contracts. And yet now, Newcastle United's fans are meant to lead the fight for human rights. Um, Why should football be separated from the influx of questionable money that plays such an important role in the British economy? That last part was my question. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I think I mean it's a, it's a it's a fantastic passage, and he, he's right on everything. I would I would take issue with the last bit. Why should Newcastle fans be asked to lead the thing on human rights? Nobody asked Newcastle fans to to lead <clears throat> the fight for human rights. You know, that's nobody's asking them to do that. I think what people are saying to them is, don't go out and cheerlead for these guys. Don't be part of the project that, that, that rehabilitates the image. You know, you don't have to actively go out and storm the gates and say, no, that, you know, that's, that's not what, you don't have to do anything. So um, I think the difference in what Goldblatt's talking about there is he's talking about, um, you know, the, the numerous ways in which the, the political and business class in this country allows... Saudi Arabia to prosper financially and politically, right? And it's inexcusable, mm. absolutely inexcusable. And people have been writing and researching and talking about that for a long time. And it doesn't get the headlines it should. Absolutely. He's absolutely right. But this is different. This is about a, a football club. This is about a, a social institution. This is about a community institution being used to essentially whitewash the reputation you know, to rehabilitate the image of both a person and a, and a, and a country, right? So, so it is separate. And if we do value football clubs more than we value businesses, and we do, which is why we have supposedly fit and proper persons tests, right? Because they're, they're different. You know, they're not just businesses. They're run as businesses. Yes, but it's just not a, this fit and proper. For, there's just not enough in there about murders and public <laughs> beheadings and stuff like this. It just doesn't seem to be well adjusted to the modern world. No, exactly, precisely. But 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 that's the point. We, because they're more than that, and they deserve to be protected. And remember, this is this is a transactional relationship. He's buying something. So what's the cost for Newcastle United? What's the cost for Newcastle, the city? I mean, my argument is that that comes at a, a significant cost to your reputation, also to your democratic institutions in Newcastle, but that's maybe a separate and longer discussion. Mm. Um, so I think go, the Goldblatt piece and the Cooper piece were, were fantastic, you know, and they're basically setting this within the context of, you know, corrupt <laughs> political corruption in the UK. Um, and this is, this is like that, um, but it is also um, in nature slightly different. Um, so I, I, yeah, I agree with Goldblatt, but I, I, I take slight issue with his last point. There's also, I guess, the side issue of. I mean, I'm I'm an immigrant to this country. I wasn't born here, but as my understanding of the political history of this country goes, traditionally the good people of the Northeast 
tend not to look at governments and particularly conservative governments and say, oh, well, if they're doing something, that must mean it's morally correct. I mean, that's not a line of thinking that I'm very familiar with from... <laughs> Precisely. You know, since when, since when did the actions of the British Conservative and Unionist Party become the, you know, the moral guideline for people in the Northeast? It's, it's insane. And of course, it's all Labour politicians. We're waving this through. I'm, I'm, for personal reasons, prone to holding up the Tories as the big boogeyman on this podcast. But it is true. We've had quite a few Labour politicians who thoroughly embarrassed themselves in this process. Exactly. And same in Manchester. You know, I mean, that's again, it's, it's really fascinating that they've chosen these sort of um, these sleeping giants of, from the north of England in in, you know, resolutely left leaning cities and working class communities and yet it is the the political representatives of those communities who've gone out to bat for them time and time again it's really it's depressing but fascinating so i've taken a lot of your time and i do appreciate it nick but i want to end on something which is so my impression in england uh from social media, from uh, seeing the statements from the Newcastle uh, United Supporters Trust, this sort of thing. Uh, this could be false impressions from social media where people who uh, have very strong opinions tend to be heard the most. Uh, but my impression is that there's a pretty strong consensus in the, the Newcastle community that, uh, uh, that that this is just a good thing and it's all very great. But actually what I've noticed from a lot of Norwegian Newcastle fans who would be the people perhaps listening to this is that there's a lot more... Uh, on uh, on the Norwegian side, and not, a lot more people on the Norwegian side of it who are very very conflicted, and I do wonder if that's because we've had a huge debate on, on Qatar this year mm. in in Norway. So maybe these issues are much more present in our minds in Norway than they are in in England. That's possible. Now the question I'm taking a very long time to get to is what are fans actually supposed to do? I know we touched on it, but it seems because the Premier League has allowed this takeover to happen, uh, the fans have been put in a position where it seems like. Either you stop supporting your club, which is just unthinkable and maybe impossible on an emotional level, or you basically become an extra and a willing accomplice and a useful idiot in, in a PR exercise for, for what is a truly despicable regime. Now, that's a very difficult situation for someone to be in, and I think we should be very sympathetic to it. But, but the question is, since we've been talking about this for a while now, what are fans actually meant to do? Yeah, yeah. Jack Pitbrook wrote a really good article yesterday in in the Athletic on this, which I would direct people to. Now he's a he's a Manchester City supporter, and so he he was able to express his conflicted feelings over that relationship and sort of essentially give some advice to Newcastle supporters. I thought mm. it was a really good piece, you know, because you can't. You can't turn off your emotions. You can't suddenly stop supporting Newcastle, right? I mean, that's it's be absurd to ask people to do that or to, you know, to demand that people stop going to games. Um, I think everyone's going to deal with this in their own way, and everyone has to be allowed to do that, right? What's right for one person won't be right for another. Mm -hmm. But I think people have to be uh, inform yourself. You know, make sure you know what this is about. And if you know what this is about, then you can make the right decisions, you know, um, and don't defend them and don't cheerlead for them. Because that's what I think partly the reason they get involved in these things is because they want to buy the support and the loyalty of fan bases. Um, and if you deny them that, I think the rationale for this type of takeover begins to wither slightly. And that's what we want to see. Um, but if so, you know, if Newcastle fans are going out defending um you know, 
the murder of Jamal Khashoggi or attacking his fiance, as we have seen, um, then then you know the the cost benefit for this takeover from the Saudi perspective just just holds right up. Um, so yeah, I would say you know, make your own decisions as to what you think is appropriate, but for God's sake, don't don't go out and 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 sort of act as a as a defender of the Saudi government or of Mohammed bin Salman. Okay, thank you very much for your time, Nick. I will leave you uh, to, to do your actual job, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, as, as much as I enjoy hoping, talking to you, I kind of hope I don't have to uh, again for a while, maybe in a more social setting. I don't know. I don't get to talk to anyone about anything nice ever. I just feel like some bad stuff happens and people want to want to talk to me. So it's a very awkward, um, not awkward, it's just a bit odd, but um, I guess that's... Um, that's the way of it, right? <laughs> it is. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks. Bye.